would not flinch this morning. There's a lot on the line. And this is calm weather, Father. So may we be like the Puritans who in calm weather said that we ought to mend our sails. Please come now, Lord Jesus, and make these holy moments. Lord, the the winds are going to get choppier. The waves are going to get more menacing. Five, 10, 15 years out, a sermon like this will be costly for our church. But not as much today. May we use this time and redeem it. Mend our sails for the storms are coming. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the great captain of the ship. In Jesus' name, amen. Take me to church. Some of you were thinking, I thought you already were. Others of you are thinking of a song right now. Take Me to Church, a song that was officially released on September 13, 2013. The author is a 25-year-old recording artist from Ireland named Andrew Hosier Byrne. His friends call him Andrew, but uh, he's known as a musician simply by the, the middle of those names, Hosier. Take Me to Church was a song that was released in 2013, but it really didn't uh, begin to pick up speed until 2014, until last year. And boy, did it pick up speed. Uh, The song went viral, as we say. Now, in another generation, you say it shot to the top of the charts, okay? We say viral these days, and I'm not sure that there's a better word for it. At one point, Take Me to Church Worldwide was getting 10,000 views an hour on YouTube last year. A truly global phenomenon. Take Me to Church was a number one hit in 12 countries. It was nominated for Song of the Year just a few weeks ago at the Grammys, 57th Annual Grammy Awards. In fact, Hosier uh, performed the song alongside the incomparable Annie Lennox, whom I love very much. Uh, In terms of sales, the single Take Me to Church is certified triple platinum. Uh, For those keeping score at home, that's three million units sold. That's a lot. On the positive side of the ledger, uh, Take Me to Church is a a great groove. It is smooth. It is well-crafted. It is deeply soulful. On one level, the song is really impressive to me. On another level, really the most important level, the deeper level, the level of meaning, level of words, the song is incredibly troubling on on two fronts. The first front of which is that the song is representative of just how debauched and depraved popular music in the West has become. Because the song is an idolatrous celebration of same-sex attraction and relationships. Now, at the same time, the song also serves as a fitting and stinging indictment to those sectors of the church that react to same-sex attraction and relationships with hypocrisy and condemnation and hatred and violence. 
so there's a, there's a deep irony in the song's title, Take Me to Church. There's an irony because Take Me to Church, as we said, is nothing short of an idolatrous celebration of, of same-sex attraction and relationships. That it celebrates same-sex attraction is, is abundantly clear. And if you haven't seen that, then look at the video. It's very clear. What's less clear is what the song's message might be for those who struggle with their own same-sex attraction. To be perfectly unambiguous here, what I mean is, what does such a song have to say to the man or woman or the younger boy or the younger girl who experiences same-sex attraction and hates it? Dr. Wesley Hill is assistant professor of biblical studies at an evangelical seminary on the East Coast. And his memoir entitled Washed in Waiting, which is a great read, um, he writes this, quote, My own story is a story of feeling spiritually hindered rather than helped by my homosexuality. My story testifies to the truth that homosexuality was not God's original creative intention for humanity. Homosexual practice goes against God's will for all human beings, especially those of us who trust in Christ. End quote. Similarly, uh, another man that I strongly commend to you, the ministry of the Reverend Sam Alberry. Sam Alberry is associate pastor of St. Mary's Church in Maidenhead, England. Uh, he wrote an outstanding book entitled, Is God Anti-Gay? And in that book, Sam Alberry writes, In my final weeks of high school, though I had a couple of girlfriends, I never felt the same kind of bond I, as I had with one or two of my close male friends. As the summer began and there was less and less going on to distract me, the truth began to bite, and the words began to suggest them and form themselves in my mind. I think I'm gay. This was not a welcome development. I wanted to have feelings for girls with my friends, I was finding myself having feelings for my friends. So, where do Wesley Hill and Sam Alberry go for help? If they go to the culture, they will find themselves stampeded into a lifestyle that they are trying desperately to resist. Western culture celebrates same-sex attraction. But what about when you experience it and you struggle with it? You don't want it. You know it's forbidden. Where do you go? What's your next move when the culture is an unsafe guide in this matter? Ironically, you follow the advice of the song title, Take Me to Church. Now, allow me a parenthetical statement for those here this morning who find themselves wrangling over this issue more frequently than, weep than weeping over it. If you count yourself a Christian, and when this issue comes up, all you can think of is yuck or gross. And that's just disgusting. All those gays on TV or in my workplace or in my family. If that's all you've got, 
it is possible that your learning curve on this sermon will be steeper than for the person who experiences same-sex attraction. It's not our job to condemn homosexuals. Now, for those who need it the other way, it's not our job to commend them. So what is our job? What's the big idea? Here's a big idea. Those who struggle with same-sex attraction have a formidable enemy in the broader culture, but a staunch ally in the local church. Those who struggle, underline the word struggle, with same-sex attraction have a formidable enemy in the broader culture, but a staunch ally in the local church. Well, why is the church so well-positioned to offer help and hope? Because we hold the keys to gospel-saturated soul care. Remember? Only the church holds these keys. Only the church has been entrusted with the gospel. Without these five keys, we have nothing to offer the person struggling with same-sex attraction. We have nothing to offer them but condemnation or commendation. Jesus calls us to a third way. The mystery of how to counsel someone struggling with same-sex attraction ought not to remain a mystery. You just need to know the keys. And if you've been with us this Lenten season, you've been thinking about the keys a little bit. You know the five keys. Seek to understand them. Labor to appreciate them. Come to empathize with them. Confess you're a lot like them. And counsel God's word to them. Do you know a person struggling with same-sex attraction? Statistics say that you do. If you think you don't, you just think you don't. You do. You do. They may not have told you for a number of reasons, chief among them that evangelical Christians are supposed to be the sworn enemy of the gay community in our culture. The devil loves that trick. Do you know a person struggling with same-sex attraction? Of course you do. How do you counsel them? Well, trusting that you're in possession of the five keys to gospel-saturated soul care because they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. But once they know how much you care, then you tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. First, tell them that it's easy to be deceived in a culture as morally adrift as ours. That's point number one. It's, tell them, it's, it's easy to be deceived in a culture as morally adrift as ours. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So we'll break off the reading there just for the purposes of point one easy to be deceived in a culture as morally adrift as ours. The ancient city of Corinth was an economic powerhouse. Corinth was known for its commercial prosperity. It was a wealthy harbor city on the Mediterranean Sea. As a city, it was cosmopolitan in every sense of the term. It was sophisticated, it was worldly, it was aristocratic. 
Religiously, it was pluralistic. In fact, ancient Corinth in the first century makes 21st century postmodern Western culture look pre-modern. <laughs> All I mean to say is, if it's the your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth way of dealing with world, Corinth was all over that 2,000 years ago. Okay, there's nothing new under the sun. First century Corinth makes 21st century American postmodernism look like pre-modernism. In fact, one of the world's leading authorities on this epistle is a man named Anthony Thistleton. He wrote a little 2,000-page commentary on these 16 chapters. And Thistleton writes... The self-sufficient, self-congratulatory culture of Corinth, coupled with an obsession about peer group prestige, success in competition, their devaluing of tradition and universals, their near contempt for those standing on some chosen value system, provides an embarrassingly closed model for the postmodern context of our gospel in our own times. 1 Corinthians stands as a, in a distinctive position of relevance to our own age. You know what 1st century Corinth was like? 21st century America. Wealthy, arrogant, pragmatic, selfish, bootstraps, morally bankrupt. And the fact of the matter is, there were folks who loved the Lord, who understood the gospel in the churches of Corinth, who struggled to follow Jesus in obedience to his unbelievably high standard of morality in the context of the city of Corinth. The church in Corinth was terribly tempted by the sinful culture in which they lived. So Paul felt himself obliged, constrained, in fact, to remind these people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Matthew Henry, the Puritan, said, men are very much inclined to flatter themselves that they may live in sin and yet die in Christ. That's what he's warning them of. Is it easy to be deceived when you live in a godless society? You tell me. How, what's it like? American culture over the last half century in particular has been a rich experiment in ethical wandering and moral cruise control. Popular music tells the story as well as anything. This is my wheelhouse, so this is one of the ways I know how to think, think of it. From Elvis's gyrating hips in the 1950s to Woodstock's free love in the 60s to David Bowie's gender bending in the 1970s to Madonna's erotic rule breaking in the 80s from gangster rap's obscenities in the 1990s to Marilyn Manson's satanic explorations in the early 21st century up to the present day where Hosier has runaway success with a song lampooning the church and celebrating same-sex attraction, Take Me to Church. 
American popular music, although he's Irish, it's been popular in America, American popular music has in many ways just paralleled or provided the soundtrack for the debauched culture. And uh, if you're not a music person, maybe you're into comic entertainment. This would be another one of my weaknesses. 40 years ago, Monty Python could get riotous laughs from the audience when they poked fun at cross-dressing with their lumberjack uh, sketch. Could they get the same laugh today? Um, maybe nervous laughter. What about 1982? What about Dustin Hoffman in Tootsie? That's a funny movie. Nominated for 10 Oscars, Sidney Pollack's classic film. The reason it was funny is because it played with gender roles. It was absurd and hilarious and brilliant. Would it get the same response today? In the day of Bruce Jenner's transitioning? It would get picketed, would be one response. Or remember when Seinfeld first began to take on the issue of homosexuality in the 1990s? I'm not gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Okay, that's an interesting tipping point. Because it was assumed that it was wrong before the 1990s in the popular culture. And now it's a little bit of a joke. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Interesting, isn't it? What about the church? Well, the church just mirrors the culture. <laughs> We're about seven years behind at any given point in time. Um, Francis Schaeffer was famous for saying that. Uh, he said, you tell me what the culture is doing in America. I will tell you what the evangelical church will be up to in about seven years from now. He was right. Prophetic. Much on the mark. We had a sexual revolution in the culture. We've had a homosexual revolution in the culture. And now it's happening in the church. The Episcopal Church USA, the Presbyterian Church USA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, they're the ones who've gone on record in endorsing same-sex relationships. They've just gone on record. The other denominations are fracturing and fissuring right now. There's more to come. I think they're waiting until the Supreme Court rules this summer and then it's going to fall like dominoes. So, do you know people in your web of relationships struggling with same-sex attraction? Of course you do. What do you tell them? Well, if they'll talk with you, and because you think you don't know any, it's because they won't talk with you. But if they'll talk with you, and if they know how much you care, They'll care how much you know. Yes, they will. First thing you can tell them is that you, you get it. It's just, it's easy to be deceived in a culture as morally adrift as ours. Secondly, you can tell them point two. Point two. All sins, especially sexual sin, including homosexual desires and behaviors, are idolatrous offenses serious enough to exclude persons from God's kingdom forever? When counseling a family member or friend struggling with same-sex attraction, you can tell them. You can tell them that all sins, especially sexual sin, 
including homosexual desires and behaviors, are idolatrous offenses, serious enough to exclude persons from God's kingdom forever. You say, I can't tell them that. You can't? Then you're a coward if you can't tell them that. I'm not attempting to insult you so much as simply inform you. That's precisely what you are. You're a coward. Your temporary comfort is something you value more than their eternal comfort. Think about it. If someone you love is struggling with same-sex attraction, they're struggling, and they want to talk to you, their next move is to talk to you because they're wondering about their next move. If you have the privilege to address somebody on those terms and you won't tell them point number two, you're a chicken. All sins, especially sexual sin, including homosexual desires and behaviors, are idolatrous offenses serious enough to exclude persons from God's kingdom forever. I'm quite aware that in five years, ten years from now, that phrase will get our 501c3 lifted. Okay? I know that. I know it may cost me jail time. I'm aware of that. Not today. That's why we talk today. Isn't that what the Bible says? 1 Corinthians 6 9 and 10, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's not pulling punches, right? He's not playing around. And neither should we. This is serious business. We're talking about the difference between eternal life and eternal punishment. And the fact that there are Christians, there are people that call themselves evangelical Christians who are equivocating on this issue. It's very sad. It's very sad. It's incredibly important that we get clear as a church here. The Bible explicitly, roundly, repeatedly condemns same-sex desire and behavior. Now, notice this text isn't merely about homosexuality. It's not the only thing on the table here. This is what is so extraordinary about this text. Paul refers to a wide range of sins. It's an equal opportunity offender, isn't it? Um, It's one of the classic New Testament vice lists. Now, for the sake of focusing for a few moments, let's just leave verse 10 off the table and just think about verse 9. There's plenty here. Verse 9 explicitly mentions four sins, sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality. Uh, What's interesting, of course, is at root, they're hardly different. At root. All of them are variations on the first and the second. Each of these are idolatrous expressions of sexual sin. Please don't entertain the fantasy and fiction that homosexuality is somehow more on God's hit list than some other sexual sin. Perish the thought. Sexual sin in every possible form is reprehensible to God. Why? Well, a handful of verses later, Paul answers the question this way. Uh, Take a look at 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 18. 
1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, God's word says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Sexual sin is unique, Paul's saying. Lust, pornography, adultery, homosexuality, these are desires and behaviors offensive enough to a holy God to warrant exclusion from his eternal kingdom. So just because our focus is homosexuality this morning, don't flatter yourself for a nanosecond that if you look at pornography, you're off the hook. You're first on the list, right? Sexual immorality, unrepentant, persistent sexual sin will send you to hell. Unrepentant extramarital affairs and sexual activity, premarital sexual activity, not repenting from, is inexcusable for a Christian. Now, we keep saying desires, not just behaviors. Maybe you're not seeing desires here. Like, isn't the behavior what the Bible prohibits, not the desire? Surely an orientation can't be helped, right? That's a popular way of coming at this issue. And I've said under preaching by people that I deeply respect that say it that way. I just don't respect that aspect of their preaching. I believe it to be unwise at best and terribly naive and foolish and damning at worst, though, to, to disconnect behavior from desire. Okay? Consider the words of Jesus about garden variety, heterosexual lust from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, beginning in 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Like, if Jesus warns us that strongly about the orientation toward heterosexual lust, as a good Jewish rabbi, what would be on his mind with relationship to same-sex attraction? Orientation of the heart. We don't have to wonder. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus affirms in no uncertain terms that adultery and all sexual immorality proceeds from the heart. The heart of the matter is the heart is the matter. This is not just about behavior. It's not just about raw sex. It's about root level idols of the heart. It's about in cherishing as an entitlement that which is forbidden. Now that we've mentioned idols of the heart, allow me to say one thing about this before we move on. Paul note, notice that Paul mentions four sins rapid fire in verse 9. And I've suggested that they're related, and they certainly are. Sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, 
men who practice homosexuality. Uh, literally, if you have the, the ESV, there's a footnote in there that tips you off to the Greek, the active and passive partners in a homosexual, a consensual homosexual encounter. That's what's going on there. Two different words, active and passive partners. What's idolatry doing in there? I mean, doesn't that seem out of place to you? It's in the right place. In fact, I'm tempted to say it's perfect. Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul conducts what is amount to his longest New Testament discussion about the nature of homosexual sin. And from that famous passage, sometimes, and I did for quite a while, believe that Paul is making an example of homosexuality as like the worst kind of sin. In other words, things are going to get so bad that the worst thing of all, homosexuality, is going to emerge. I used to think that about this passage until a preacher who's no longer in gospel ministry today taught me something different about a year ago. He got the text right. Why is the passage in Romans important? Well, because the passage in Romans in its broader context is concerned with idolatry. And Paul cites in Romans 1 male and female homosexuality as illustrations, not just random illustrations, perfect illustrations of idolatry. This may get more graphic than you were bargaining for on a Sunday morning, but hang in there with me. Again, this is from an acquaintance who's no longer in ministry. Picture two unclothed men facing each other, or two unclothed women. If that's too graphic, then picture the male sign and the, fem and the female sign, but two male signs here and two male female signs here. Or if you like, side-by-side, uh, -side, two public restroom pictographs. Okay? Women, women, men, men. Okay? What are you viewing? Or more specifically, if they're facing one another, what are they viewing? They are viewing an image of themselves in one another. I doodled it here in my Bible just so I'll never forget it. What are you looking at? You're looking at a mirror image. You're looking at two identical icons. It's a perfect idolatry. Homosexuality is a flawless, picture-perfect idolatry. It's humanity turned in on itself. It's an impeccable illustration of idolatry. It's the creature worshiping its very own image. You see how this is offensive to God? That's the problem. It's not, yuck. It's, there's no God there anywhere. So homosexual desires and behaviors are idolatrous offenses serious enough to exclude persons from God's kingdom forever. And one final point today, and you have my word, it's really good news. We need some good news. Do you know a person struggling with same-sex attraction? Tell them that through Christ and the Spirit, God specializes in transferring such sinners to safety and transforming them into saints. Tell them that through Christ in the Spirit, God specializes in transferring such sinners to safety and transforming them into saints. I told you this was good news. Listen to verse 11. It's the namesake of this morning's sermon. And such were some of you. 
but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So don't breeze over the first six words in verse 11. And such were some of you. These are serious idolatries among the people of God. Nevertheless, they are also past tense identities among the people of God. Past tense identities. Christians are not homosexuals, though they may struggle with same-sex attraction. Christians are not alcoholics, though they may battle temptations to drunkenness. Christians aren't even sinners. They're saints with indwelling sin that they are seeking to kill. You say, well, that's just semantics. <laughs> no, 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 no. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Hmm. Listen to how final each of these realities are. Paul puts them all in the perfect tense, a past action with ongoing effects. Praise God for the perfect verb tense. Verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Perfect tense. Past action, ongoing effects. Which means if you are in Christ then these are present realities for you. Now, only in union with Christ. But if you're in Christ, you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. This takes us back to our study of Ephesians. These are the rooms of union with Christ. I quiz my kids on this repeatedly. Give me the rooms, five rooms of union with Christ. The delivery room of regeneration. That's washed. Titus 3.5, Paul refers to the washing of regeneration, being born again. So the delivery room of regeneration. Also the courtroom of justification, cleared before the bar of God's justice. Christ takes our sin penalty. He offers us his perfect righteousness in exchange. Courtroom of justification. Finally, the weight room of sanctification. This is such a done deal. Paul speaks of it as in the rearview mirror. You were sanctified. It's stunning all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So through Christ in the Spirit, God specializes in transferring such sinners to safety and transferring them, transforming them into saints. Only the church of Jesus Christ can offer this to somebody struggling with same-sex attraction. Only the church can. Do you know Jesus? Do you know my king? He wants to know you. He suffered and died and bled on a cross. He expired. He was buried on the third day. He rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Do you know Jesus? Are you trusting in him today? Turning away from all known sin placing your faith in him. Such were some of you. 
Those who struggle with same-sex attraction have a formidable enemy in the broader culture, but a staunch ally in the local church. Why is the local church so well positioned to offer help and hope? Really, really because we hold the keys to gospel-saturated soul care. Only the church, given the resources of the Holy Spirit through the Holy Scriptures, can truly understand other people. And also labor to appreciate them, come to empathize with them, confess we're a whole lot like them, and counsel God's word to them. If you know a person struggling with same-sex attraction, you probably do. Tell them it's easy to be deceived in a culture as morally adrift as ours. Tell them all sins, especially sexual sin, including homosexual desires and behaviors, are idolatrous offenses, serious enough to exclude persons from God's kingdom forever and tell them that through Christ in the Spirit, God specializes in transferring such sinners to safety and transforming them into saints. Next week is the sixth and final Sunday of the Lenten season. It's also Palm Sunday. And it will be our privilege seven days from now to hear the word of God opened up by the chairman of our elders, Mr. Andy Kaler. His text is drawn from Genesis chapter 4, and the title is Counseling the Embittered. His topic, uh, sorry, the title is Why Are You Angry? His topic is Counseling the Embittered. Would you make a resolution right now to pray for Andy for lots of different reasons? You've got to give him strength and help and physical stamina as well as um, piercing insight and application. He's got a good handle on this passage. He really does, and pray that you handle it well for us. Prepare for him as he prepares both the sermon and his soul to preach. Right now, let's pray. Father, we do pray for Andy, and we pray for everyone who takes up the word of God in this pulpit. Lord, it's really not about the preacher. It's about what we're preaching. Um, Lord, I, I thank you so much that uh, you have good purposes in hard sermons and uh, some sermons, just, they just feel hard. Um, and they don't feel like comfort sometimes. But sometimes you need something hard. You need a big, solid rock some Sundays because the wind really is going to blow. It's very, very uh, not costly to preach this today. It's just the price is going to go up in the days ahead. So may we um, file this one away in the right way. <laughs> so that we can have access to it and treasure, not just put up with, treasure what your word says about gender, about persons. May we speak the truth in love and may we do it wisely. Lord, may this be a congregation always where men and women, boys and girls who find themselves struggling with same-sex attraction, that they would feel so at home here, so at home here. For such were some of us. In Jesus' name, amen.